So what is going on with baptism? What is water baptism? Um, In its more usual understood ideas that we kind of talked about a little bit last week, we see the cleansing of water as representative of the cleansing of Christ's blood, washing away our sins and making us clean. And this is a beautiful aspect of what water baptism represents. It's a beautiful picture. We also might think of baptism as a public declaration that we are acknowledging Christ as our Lord. He's the ruler of my life. I'm admitting that, acknowledging that, and I want to follow him with all my heart. And Jesus said, unless a person denies himself each day, takes up his cross and follows me, he cannot be my disciple. And so baptism is a sign of, can be a sign of this lifetime of daily deaths to our own way that we ask God to help us with every day, daily dying to ourselves so that we can rise and live in his ways as our Lord. So baptism acknowledges Christ is our savior. He washes our sins away and Christ is our Lord. We want to die to ourselves and follow him each day. And baptism can signify both these things. But what's really interesting is when you look at what the New Testament epistles have to say about baptism, there's something much, much, much more going on that's incredible. It's mysterious, hard to describe fully, blah, blah, all that stuff I said at the front. I want to talk about that today. Baptism comes from a Greek word, baptizo, which just simply means to baptize. And what that means, though, from the Greek language is to submerge, to this was interesting for me, to overwhelm. That word baptism means to overwhelm, to plunge, to sink, to drench. And it was used to describe how someone would dye a garment. They would take a piece of clothing like this and they would take some dye like this. They'd put the dye in the water Get that water full of that dye. I could have done this before the message, but I thought I, thought I want to cover the pulpit with ink. Oh my goodness. Um, now I'm in trouble with Todd and the ESC guys. If anybody has any cleaners and can come up and, um, oh boy, my whole exciting plan for this illustration is now, I've turned into Inspector Clouseau. Um, okay. Do, 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 do. What happened to all our COVID protocols where we'd have tissues right here? Just kind of kidding. Oh, that's it. Thank you, Liz. Okay, maybe they won't notice so much. Just a little bit. This is on video. Can we shut the cameras off? Okay. Okay, well, okay, so you take, pardon? Not like a total rocket science thing, but we take a white sock, right? And it's white, it's all perfectly white. (laughs) We put it in the dye and you fully immerse it. I know this is simple, everybody knows it. I just want you to think about this for a second because it's gonna come back again and again to us. Whatever is in this water goes all the way into this garment. Through the medium of the water, the two entities, the dye and the garment, 
are now permanently, forever, irrevocably fused. They're united, right? That sock is never going to be white again. <laughs> and that dye is going to stay with that sock as long as that sock shall live. The union is permanent. <laughs> Don't make me angry, Mr. McGee. You look very hulkish. <laughs> you had to be 100 years old to get that. Um, the union is permanent. It's irrevocable. There is no getting that ink out of that garment. It's been absorbed into every single fiber of this garment. And this picture is an important point into the reality of what baptism signifies. Because water baptism is a sign. It is a picture. It is a physical, visible symbol of something that is invisible to our eyes. But mammoth. We can't see it, but it's real and it's incredible. God is giving us a picture of something we can see through baptism to tell us about something we cannot see with our eyes. God uses signs to communicate truth to you and I. And that's what baptism is. It's a sign. Water baptism is not the reality. It's pointing to the reality. If someone sees Maddie's wedding ring and asks about her marriage... She doesn't take her ring off and say, well, look, my marriage is about a half a centimeter round. It's platinum with so-and-so carat diamonds set in a tiara-like base. Oh, she wants to eventually bring Luke to that person and talk about their marriage. Baptism is a sign just like a ring is a sign. So it doesn't save us, but it points to the reality that does save us. God gave us water baptism to help us grasp and understand the most incredible thing that can happen to a human in the universe. So what does the sign of water baptism point to? And if I had to sum up in one phrase, I would say that baptism signifies our union with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. Baptism signifies our union with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. What does that mean though? Right? I can say that. I want you guys to remember that. Baptism signifies our union with Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. But what does that mean? So I'm going to try to briefly unpack that with three points today or three subheadings. Death, resurrection, and union. We're going to go through each one. Death, resurrection, and union. So let's start with our death. And I mean our union with Christ and his death. Perhaps the clearest place we see that this is what baptism signifies is portrayed in Romans 6. Romans 6 I'm going to set the context up a little bit because it's important. Paul has spent three chapters teaching on God's grace in the cross, in the blood of Jesus, and how it's greater than all of our sin and how it justifies us forever before a holy God so that we are safe, saved, reconciled, and stand righteous in his sight forever and ever and ever. And no sin can stop or break that. In other words, Paul's making his case that the sins of God's people cannot outstrip his grace for them, which is a very difficult promise for us to believe, but he is making that promise in Romans 3, 4, and 5. And as, as if he's one step ahead, he then asks a question he's anticipating they might be wondering. What should we say then, he says? Maybe you're thinking this, he says. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? I mean, if, if God's going to cover our sins with more and more grace, should we just forget it? Just forget righteousness and just live lives of sin? Because obviously, if, you, if God's covered everything, then that question should come to your mind. And he says, may it never be 
And then he says this weird thing. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How shall we who died to sin? Well, when did we die to sin and what does that mean? Well, let's read what Paul says. Or do you not know? Next slide, please. Or do you not know that as many as as of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his what? Death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, knowing this, Paul saying, know this people, know this, that our old man was crucified with him. So that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also Reckon yourselves, consider yourselves, think of yourselves, believe that it's true of yourselves that you are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is, this is worth several sermons. And when we get to chapter six in Romans, when we're really there uh, expositing this, because uh, we're in the book of Romans, we will spend days, su- several Sundays over this passage. But for the purposes today, I-, I want us to get a couple of things clear. And fundamentally it's this, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, If you have turned to him to save you from your sins, if you're depending on him as your savior, and if your heart is to follow him as your Lord, if that is the the desire of your heart truly, not perfectly, you're not perfect, but you are depending on him as your savior and you truly want to follow him as your Lord and are seeking to do that. This passage is telling you why that's true about you. Like what happened? to get you to that place. And what it's telling you is that in a spiritual way, you died with Jesus and you rose with Jesus. And of all things, this is what baptism, water baptism signifies, our dying and rising with Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says over and over and over and over and over again. Have you guys ever heard that if something's emphasized and repeated in the Bible, it's really important and it's really important that the the writer's really trying to get that into our heads? Look at what happens here. In six verses, Paul says the same thing six times. And I I, I don't know if I have it up there. I probably don't. But let me just tell you what happened. In verse three, as many of us were baptized in Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried with him. Verse four, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Second time. Verse five, we've been united together in the likeness of his death. Verse six, our old man was crucified with him. Verse seven, for he who has died. Verse eight, we died with Christ. He says it six times in six verses. We have died. And we didn't just die, Paul says. We died with him. This is crucial, huge, important. We didn't just die by ourselves. We died with him. We died in his death. We were buried with him into death. We were united with him in a death like his. Our old man, our former self, was crucified with him. With him, we died. We find this concept in other places in the New Testament. Colossians 2.20, you died with Christ. 
Colossians 3.3, 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with God. Galatians 2.19, through the law, I died to the law. 2 Corinthians 5.14, for one died for all, therefore all died. I spent many years as a Christian not ever really seeing this. And I'd read the, a lot of these passages but it just wasn't part of my, my functioning, believing vocabulary. Like I had no idea that this, until I went to a, a massive crisis in 1998 and read a book about these truths. But here they are, they're right in the Bible over and over and over again. And this is hard to understand. We of course weren't alive 2000 years ago when Jesus died, we're all sitting here breathing. We haven't yet physically died the way we think of died. So what is he talking about? We know we didn't die physically. We know we weren't just with Jesus physically on the cross. So we have to broaden our understanding of death. We think of death normally in our world as the end of life, the cessation of existence functionally. But biblical, biblically speaking, death is separation. It's separation. It's separating you from something you were formerly united to. Something you used to be alive to, if you're dead to it, you're separated from it. That's the way the Bible thinks of death. Physical death, for instance, separates us from this physical realm. People who die physically, though, they don't cease to exist in the Bible. They are separated or dead to this world and they're alive to whatever is for them in the next world, whether it's judgment or life. But they don't die in the sense of ceasing to exist. They die in the sense of being separated from their bodies and separated from this world. But spiritual death is the state that we're all born into in this world. We are born spiritually dead. What does that mean? It means we're spiritually separated from God. We don't cease to exist. That's why we're born, we have spirits. But we're cut off from God as our father, as our savior, from his heart, from his ways from his purity, his righteousness. We don't look like him. We're not connected to him spiritually when, when we come into this world. There's a whole other sermon on why that is. It's not his fault. <laughs> Let me just say that. It is our fault, our problem. But Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, 2, that, that is, bef- he's saying to the church in Ephesus, he says, before you came to Christ in, in, in faith, you were, he says, dead. You were dead. How were we dead? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The life of sin you walked, it showed that you weren't connected to God. You loved sin. You gave yourself to selfishness, unbelief. You had no concept that uh, you wanted God and, and, or rather you didn't walk with the Lord. You didn't know him. In In their case, they didn't understand, have Jesus Christ, the gospel. They had no transformation of life into Christ through the gospel. And then the gospel came and they believed and their hearts were changed. Their hearts came alive. But, but that's who we are before Christ saved us. We're the walking dead. We're separated from what we were supposed to be united to. Separated from what we were supposed to be united to, which is God. We're dead to a loving, living relationship with God. We don't cease to exist. We were alive, but not to God. We were alive. I was alive until I was 20, but I was alive to hopelessness. I was alive to darkness, confusion about true things. I was alive to living for myself and hoping in myself or full of uh, absolute desperation because I had no hope apart from myself and I, couldn't, I knew I couldn't hope in myself. I was alive to being addicted to what I wanted, 
whether it was right or wrong. Those were the kinds of things I was addicted to. I was, I was addicted to people's opinion of me. I was addicted to whether they thought I was great or not. I was addicted to what women thought of me. I was addicted to, uh, what well, my point is, I had no hope. I had no hope. And I didn't walk as one who had hope. I walked as one with hope only in this world and not in God. And so what Paul is talking about when he says we died with Christ is that when we died with Christ, when we came to faith in Christ, we experienced a spiritual separation from that old person that we used to be. For those of us who have come to faith in Christ Jesus, we have experienced a real fundamental spiritual separation from the old person, the old life that we used to be. It doesn't mean we're perfect, we're growing. And I I need to table that. Why do we keep struggling with sin for another time that we'll get into as we work into Romans? But if you are in Christ, God is telling you, Paul is telling you through the Holy Spirit that that old person you used to be, separated from God, unable to obey him, hostile to him, dead to him, not really interested in him, deserving of his judgment, a person who did not really and could not really love God, that person, that life, that it's ended. It had to be killed and Christ has put it to death. The person you were had to cease being the person you are at the core of your heart. And this is not something you or I could ever accomplish in ourselves. We can't spiritually separate ourselves from our old life, but Jesus Christ has done it. When he paid for your sins, he paid for the right for you to have that life dominated by sin and hopelessness. He paid for that right to have that life ended. He purchased your freedom, your separation, your death from that old person you used to be. And here's how he bought it, brought it to an end. God, in some mysterious but very true way, united you with Christ spiritually. And when Jesus went to the cross, your old self went to the cross with him. I can't explain it. I said last week, I can't explain this. But that's what the Bible says. Paul is referring to something spiritual a spiritual immersion into Jesus Christ as he hung on that cross. Paul is referring to a spiritual union God activated between you and Christ. He put you in Jesus Christ on that cross. And when Jesus Christ was crucified, your old death, your old person was put to death with him. He's using physical words to explain something difficult but it's true he wants you to take it by faith that your old sin dominated unable to love God unable to want Jesus unable to serve Jesus unable to obey Jesus he wants you to believe that that person is not you anymore and I know for some of you for myself it is often hard to believe because of how we stumble and struggle and sin. But he's asking you to believe God for this. To believe it's true. Reckon yourselves, verse 11, he says, consider this true. You are dead to sin in Jesus Christ. This is his gift to you. You cannot 
change yourself and that old life. So reckon yourselves because of Jesus' death on the cross and you being crucified with him, reckon yourself dead to sin. Our cat Eliza used to be a house cat. She did not like being a house cat and we did not like having to deal with making sure she was a house cat. So we gave up and she has become an outdoor cat. And it turns out, I didn't know this, that outdoor cats kill things. And she's killed two bunnies in the last few months. And she lays them at our back step. And Emma, where's Emma? Emma told me yesterday that Eliza does this because that Eliza has judged us as poor food providers. That she believes we are bad hunters, is that right? And she is trying to help. And that's why she has put both bunnies square at the center of our steps in the same place. Anyway, the bunny is dead. The rabbit is dead. And how do I know this? I know this because the bunnies come without heads. Eliza somehow takes its whole head off. I don't know what she does with it. Emma told me she eats it because it's the best part. Um, John looked online and said last night, it's the best part. This is not what my message is about. My point is that bunny is dead. Okay, the bunny's dead. I can yell at it. I can poke it. I can offer it food. I can try to scare it away. I can do a little dance around it. It's dead. The little bunny's little life, wherever bunny spirits go, it's not there. And it won't respond or be affected or listen to anything from me. It's dead to me. It's dead to me. And that's how God wants us to consider our relationship with sin and powerlessness against sin. He wants us to take by faith that because of what Jesus has done, we are as dead to sin's dominion, its control over us, its power over us. We're as dead to sin as that little bunny is dead to me and you. So sin says, it comes along and says every day all the time, you have to be selfish. Come on, let's be bitter. Eh, you can't get over this. Uh, you're going to be lazy again. Let's just be lazy. You have to be greedy. There's no way you can share this money with this situation. You have to live for what others think of you instead of God. You're not going to be strong enough to overcome that. You can't. It's too much. You have to live in this addiction. You have to keep looking at these images. So let's do it. Just give in to it. Sin is saying that to us. God is wanting us to take it by faith that he has killed that relationship of bondage to sin. And some of us are doing poorly in our battle with sin. For some of us, because to a large degree, we have not decided that the sins we're battling with are really uncomfortable enough yet. You are God's child, but you are dabbling. And God, because he's your father, will help you eventually, if you're his child, be very uncomfortable with your sin. He will, as a father should, discipline you to draw you back. But some of us are not doing well, at least in part, because we functionally do not believe what God says about us. We're not reckoning ourselves dead to sin. We decide that our oppression, our fear, our despair is too much. And it just can't be true that we're dead to sin's dominion over us. And God is saying, believe me. Your emotions, your thoughts that oppose my word, 
They do not deserve authority in your life. My word deserves authority. And so for some of us, growing and making some strides against the sin battles in our lives has to involve confessing, Lord, I, I have not believed what you've said about me, which is to your glory because you have done this and you're saying this is true. I'm not boasting myself, but I need to remember I'm dead to gossip. I'm dead to bitterness. It cannot control me anymore. It doesn't have the right to. Jesus overthrew its right. And, and how did he do that? If we're dead to our old life, how, how did we become able to say to sin and death, you don't have a right over me anymore. And, and that's our next part, which is the word resurrection. We rose. We rose with Christ. Coming back to verse four, we were buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we should walk in the newness of life. Romans 6, 11, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive, alive to what? Alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Ephesians 2 says it this way, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even as we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and verse six and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Colossians two. Having been buried with him in baptism, you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses with the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. So all these passages I just read, they speak to the parallel act, fact of not just our death with Christ, but our rising with Christ. Again, this is in a spiritual dimension outside of space and time as we think of it. But we were spiritually, not a physical resurrection we're talking about here that will come but we were truly raised with Christ what are we talking about here well at least two components one we are new we're new creations we're not who we used to be 2 Corinthians 5 17 and 18 if anyone is in Christ the new creation has come the old is gone the new is here Colossians 3, 1 and 4, you have been raised with Christ and your life is hidden with Christ. At the center of the new person you are is Christ. His spirit, his life, his heart. If you want God this morning, if you long for God, if in your life you're seeking after God, and yes, you're doing that imperfectly, but if that's true, it's because Christ is in you. His life is emanating from your spirit, changed you, giving you new desires and new powers. And that's why if you are in Christ, you, you never feel at home in your sin. If you're in Christ, you never feel at home in your sin. You struggle with it, but it isn't home to you. You, you long for your true home, your true father. 
This is what it means to be reborn. It starts on the cross where our bondage to our old life is ended. And our new life begins when we rise in Christ's resurrection out of the tomb. It happens in a spiritual plane. It's not in time and space as we understand it. And this is what baptism signifies. We go under into Christ's death and we come out changed, filled with Christ, filled with his life. And every fiber of our being is Jesus Christ. And and I want to talk now with my last heading about the implications of that for us. And that's my last word, union. Union. This idea that all of Christ is in us and all of us is in Christ. Just as that ink is filling that sock. (laughs) It's a little crude illustration. When you rose from the dead spiritually, when you came to Christ and you experienced new life in Christ, you did not rise as an independent spirit ready to live morally and love deeply through your own new heart. You rose in union with Christ, inseparable, united forever like the ink in the cloth. Jesus lives in the very core of you. But that's not just a nice thing to believe. It's to be the reality of your daily functioning. 1 Corinthians 6.10 says this, whoever is united to Christ is one spirit with him. Colossians 3, Christ is your life. He's your life. The new life that you have that's living in you, giving you the power to follow God, to love God, to obey God is nothing less than the very person of Jesus Christ living inside you. And if you want to grow as a Christian, you cannot grow independent of that life of Jesus Christ. In other words, God didn't save you so you could now spiritually do it on your own. He saved you so you could more deeply and more continually and more closely, more and more depend on Jesus all the time to live for Jesus all the time. He saved you so that moment by moment, day by day, you could depend on Jesus Christ all the time to live for Jesus Christ all the time. My mom used to say to me that she felt it was unfair that parents would spend all these years raising their kids from poopy diapers to terrible tantrums, to skin knees, to teenage years of intense angst. And then just when the kid starts to get mature enough and able to really be in a great relationship with you as their mom or dad, they leave you. My mom thought that was a really bum deal. She's like, you just finished. Like now you're a great kid. You were such a mess for so long. And now that you're able to be an adult and grown up, you leave me. She was tongue in cheek in that. She didn't oppress me with it, but, but she really felt that way. But that's how we see maturity, right? Like none of us want our kids to be unable to live independent lives outside our home. That's how we think of a mature kid. They'd be able to move out of our basement and leave the PS5 in the basement, not take it with them, but they'd be able to live on their own, live apart from us, live independent of us. 
That's good. That's maturity. In spiritual things, it's the exact opposite. In spiritual matters, it's the exact opposite. Real spiritual maturity is not growing more and more independent. It's recognizing more and more our dependence, our weakness, our inability in ourselves, and our need for Jesus Christ. And coming to grips more and more with how sufficient and faithful and powerful and loving and patient and tender and smart he is. Maturity as a Christian is not living farther from our father, but ever and ever closer to him. Maturity is not being strong enough to live on our own, but recognizing we're, we're too weak to live anywhere but in full dependence on Jesus all the time. In Romans 6, Paul says it this way, be dead, consider yourselves dead to sin. Listen, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Just think about that. He doesn't say, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to morality, alive to good character. He says, consider yourselves alive to God in Christ. All of who he is is now alive to you. It's available to you. He is now your resource to live for him. So don't consider yourself dominated by sin anymore. Consider yourself with the whole supermarket of Jesus Christ at your disposal all the time. Believe it. If you want to receive that, believe it. There's a bad name it, claim it. There's a bad health and wealth gospel. There's a bad way to believe God for the Porsche I want or the perfect marriage I want or the you know, perfect health I want. You won't find that in the scriptures. But there is also a really good name it, claim it. Believing God for the help I need to live for God. Believing God for the wisdom I need, for the patience I need, for the love I need, for the forgiveness I need, for the cleansing I need. He wants us to name and claim that. We're alive to God now. And he's our life. We're, we're to feed off him. We're to live off him. He's the fuel we run on. His words, his trustworthy promises, even his merciful warnings, you used to be dead to those things. They didn't grab you. They couldn't fill you and fuel you. But if you're a Christian, that's not true anymore. They used to not really matter to you. You were dead to them. But God's made you alive. And now you're alive to his words. Your new heart is made to be sensitive to his words. It's made to feed on his words. It's made to be grown by his words. And now you can hear his words and be changed by them and walk out his words because you're alive to him and you're alive to his power in you. His power to rescue you. I remember for 20 years, I would cry out to God about deep struggles I had. I had enough religion to, to cry out to God. But man, did I feel like that door was shut. I believed that I would be saved by whether I was a good boy or a bad boy. I believed in my conception of religion that my salvation depended on me. I didn't know the truth about Jesus Christ. And I don't believe I had a real relationship with him. And although he'd stop by every once in a while and be really kind to me, so much of my time, it just felt like the door was shut. But then I came to the gospel of his son. 
and the salvation that was a free gift for my soul that I couldn't earn. And boy, I struggle, but his door isn't shut to me. I can testify after 30 years of being a Christian. You used to be dead to his throne of grace and mercy. It was not for you. He's kind to all people. But that throne of grace and mercy where only his children come used to be shut to you as his child. But that's not true anymore. Your cries to him before that throne are the cries of his dearest child. He loves you like he loves his son. And you are alive to his throne now. He will always hear your prayer. May not answer in the time and the way that you decide he needs to. But he is always hearing your prayer and answering in the best way for you. So spend time there throughout the day as you need to. Listen, you are called and will be called to much suffering in this life. You are called and will be called to much suffering in this life. And I am too. It's one of his most useful tools to mature us, to convince us of our inadequacy in ourselves and to make us strong in him as we see him and rely on him. And so he's going to bring a lot of suffering. And, and I know for all of you, probably you all would say, amen. He's brought me and is bringing me a lot of suffering. It's a tool of his, but listen, he has suffered horribly beyond our imagining. He knows its deepest pain. His heart is moved with sympathy in your suffering. Know this because his mercy is alive to you and you are alive to his mercy. So run to him again and again in the trials that he allows into your life. You're alive to his Holy Spirit. His spirit places desires in you. If you're in Jesus Christ, you want things that are good that you didn't want before. You want to love your neighbor and him like you never did before you met Jesus Christ. And maybe if you were little when you met him, you can't really remember a time when you didn't really want to love him. But that was who you were when you came out of the womb. You weren't ready to love God and love it. But, but, but he's changed you by his spirit. He's put his spirit in you. And those desires he has, they war against the wrong desires. And he gives you spiritual gifts to help you conquer those bad desires and help you fan into flame the good desires, the things that he wants for you in your life. So help him to recognize when his Holy Spirit is giving you his desires and his wants and ask him, Lord, please give me that. Give me more power to walk out this patience. Or maybe it's a gift. Give me this power to walk out this service that I just feel growing in me. I want to serve this way. I want to teach. I want to exhort. I want to heal. I feel a sense that God might have given me that gift. And so Lord, if that's you, fan that into flame and give me, give me a sense of that because you're alive to him. And listen, I'm closing now. There's a mystery about all this. I can't explain to you perfectly what it means that Christ is your life. The idea that if I, if I took your spiritual soul and I could prick it, it would bleed Jesus Christ spiritually. I, I don't know what that means fully. And I don't want to domesticate it by saying, well, when we say Christ is our life, we really don't mean Christ is our life. No, I, I think Paul means that. that. Our oneness, our union with him is so strong that he's the very fiber of our very life. You are in union with him. You are one spirit with him. 
And this union, being of one spirit with him, it is experienced to a significant degree when we, in the safety of God's word, meaning we, we, we make sure that our experience is in accordance with who Jesus is shown to be in his word, because our, our own emotions and experiences, they can take us astray. But experiencing Jesus, really, in a real relationship with him, is what you're made for. You're not just made for reading your Bible and then not thinking about him for the rest of the day or not experiencing his life. You're made to experience Jesus. I long for you, David says. I pant for you. My soul thirsts for you. He's talking about experience. Paul said, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus said in John, in that day you will know that I am in you and you are in me and I am in my father. David said at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You're meant to experience Jesus, to experience his nearness and his closeness and it's amorphous and it's subjective and it's, can be dangerous because our, again, our emotions and, ex- and our thoughts can go astray. That's why staying close to God's word sets you up so well for experiencing his spirit because he, he, gets, he knows that he can, he, he can bring himself to you and, and you're not gonna mistake him. You're gonna be able to sense it's really him because he wants you to experience him. And, and, and that happens when within the safety of God's word, we trust him moment by moment, day by day to be our strength, to be our life, to be our power to follow him. That happens moment by moment, day by day when we trust him to be our strength in this situation, in this argument, in this temptation to be lazy, in this desire to fight and be angry, in this desire to be hopeless and give up when we go to him moment by moment in our minds and our faith and say, Lord, you're here. I'm dead to being controlled by hopelessness. I'm dead to being controlled by sin. You're here. You are my strength. So please be my strength. Be my strength. And then by God's grace, we try to walk forward. We try to step out of the boat and feel that water turn into concrete under our feet. Oh, gosh, I can do this. He's here. How many issues in my marriage do I just feel like there's no way I can apologize? There's no way I can make a move forward. But at this point, I know that's not true. That's a lie. I can. Not, it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. He's ended sin's right to control us. And he's given himself as our life, as our strength. This is what baptism signifies. Dying to who we used to be, rising with him in us, never leaving us, in every fiber of our being, united with him. That's something to celebrate and remember and rehearse and clean yourself up from. I hope the Lord has taken something from all this and touched your heart if you have any questions about this and 
or confused, especially if you were confused, I would be honored if you would talk to me about that. It's painful to think about being confusing. Second to, uh, more than being boring <laughs> and running on too long. So please talk to me if you're confused and, um, and I would really want to try to help clear that up. You guys have a great rest of your day. Um, and let me pray over you. Just take a moment and pray and, and um, pray that these truths will become real to us. Lord, I, I just pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. I pray that through our spiritual baptism into you, that these words that were, were dead to sin and were alive to you would be experienced. Lord, these are not meant to just be words on paper. We are meant to be able to say with Paul, to live is Christ. Christ is my strength. Christ is my life. We are meant to experience by faith Jesus Christ dwelling in our hearts. And we can't make that happen. We can ask you and trust you as best we can. So Lord, through the Holy Spirit, would you please help us to understand what it means that we're united with Christ. We're one spirit with him forever. He lives at the very fiber of our being to be our Lord, to be our Savior every day of our lives. Would you please help us? Help me. And even now in the quietness of your heart, take, take your deepest struggles to him, your deepest trials, and believe that he cares and that he is able to help you because you're alive to him now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.